You're listening to An Educated Guest, a podcast that brings together great minds in higher ed to delve deeper into the innovations and trends guiding the future of education and careers. Hosted by the president of Wiley Education Services, Todd Zipper. Hello, this is Todd Zipper, and I am the host of An Educated Guest. Today, I am here with Ryan Craig, Managing Director of Achieve Partners. Ryan is a prolific writer, including being a senior contributor at Forbes, writes a regular blog called Gap Letter, and is the author of two books. The first is called College Disrupted, which focuses on how he sees the future of higher ed. The second is A New You, Faster Plus Cheaper Alternatives to College, which highlights boot camps, apprenticeships, and more. The key takeaways from our discussion. First, the affordability crisis is not just about affordability, it's employability as well. The combination of student loan debt and a lack of completion paired with underemployment is a warning sign that things aren't working as they should be in higher ed. Second, operating from left to right within education worked when the labor market was stable. The shift in the labor market has shown that left to right no longer works. Good first jobs in the digital economy are out of reach for many. The answer is not free college or even the four-year degree in most cases. Third, the education system in the government doesn't fund outcomes. It funds inputs and enrollments. We need to teach the things that employers are looking for in their first jobs, funding innovative new models that are not education up, but employer down. Fourth, talent as a service, a new way to think about education delivery is a model that trains talent and places with employers, eliminates friction for the learner and employer, creating faster and cheaper pathways to good first jobs. And lastly, immersive intensive practical experiences are still critical for many jobs. Paired with online learning can serve as an important pathway at scale. Ryan, thank you for being here today with me. Todd, it's great to see you and hear you. So we're going to spend most of our time today talking about the crisis of affordability and employability within higher education, along with higher ed's response to the pandemic and academic integrity, and probably a few other topics. So we've got a lot of ground to cover. So let's get started. It's a well-established norm that college costs too much for the value being created for students and society. And the big evidence often cited is the $1.7 trillion of student debt, which is rising. First, do you agree that I am framing affordability in the right way with this program? And this is a big problem. Yeah, look, that was a chapter in my most recent book, The Crisis of Affordability. And it seems like every few weeks, there's a new book that comes out about the student loan crisis. Just this week, there's the Wall Street Journal reporter's history of the student loan crisis, trying to sort of figure out the origins of when, (laughs) how this all started snowballing. I think that, you know, the total uh, volume of debt is important. The debt per student is important. But for me, it's it's really a combination. Like, look, if everyone graduated from university and graduated into a $60,000 a year job, nobody would really care, right? Because college would be affordable because you'd be able to pay back those loans, you know, within three, four, five years. But the problem is that it's not just affordability. The flip side of it, I know we're going to come to it, is employability. And you have to ask yourself, you know, it's, it's, and it's not just the, the fact that you have colleges now with sort of a list price of, you know, $60,000, $70,000 a year, although all but the most selective colleges are, you know, discounting heavily to less than half of that. But it's the fact that these programs take years, right? A bachelor's degree 
at a great school takes four years. And if you're at a public university where you can't get your courses, it could be five, six years in order to graduate. And you know, I think it's as big a problem as the crisis of affordability and student loan debt that over a four, five, six-year period, for the students we care most about, those who most need the leg up promised by post-secondary education, life tends to get in the way. <laughs> we, we, we know this. You know, the, our, our least selective institutions have completion rates well below 50%, some well below 20%. And it's that, con- Arnie Duncan uh, once said, it's the combination of the student loan debt and the, and, and the lack of completion, which is, you know, that's truly a nightmare. You don't graduate with any credential of value and you have ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars of student loan debt. You are absolutely worse off than if you'd undertaken the journey, you know, into higher education in the first place. We did a sort of rough back of the envelope estimate. And if you look over the last decade and a half since the Great Recession, and you look at everyone who matriculated into a post secondary institution, be that community college or a four year institution, and you think about outcomes, probably less than 40%, maybe even less than 30% of those students who matriculated, who enrolled, have experienced a positive outcome. When you add the lack of completion to those who graduate into underemployment and student loan debt they can't realistically pay back, you get a, a you know, a definitely a majority uh, of students. And so, you know, to me, that's the warning sign that things are not not working, not working as they should be, not working as well as they could be in American higher education. Hmm. So Ryan, we see some of these solutions that seem to be almost at the margin. I interviewed two recent guests, one, the founder of the online Masters of Science and Computer Science at Georgia Tech, which you know famously we know about now having 12,000 students in the master's program, $7,000 for a, a degree that often cost 10x that. I also interviewed someone focused on bringing baccalaureate degrees to community colleges. And and obviously those costs are significantly lower and often give opportunity to those that would not have taken advantage of completing their bachelor's degree. So you see these solutions at the margin. You see some more meta solutions like an income share agreement. You know, where are we going wrong? What can we do to start to really solve this affordability crisis? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, look, I I think the answer is not more master's degrees. (laughs) (laughs) Master's degrees are for those who've already completed a bachelor's degree and can afford to take on more debt to pursue a master's degree. So, you know, innovation in master's uh, programs is not really interesting to me. It's not a, a solution. I think the Bachelor's degrees at community colleges are even more high school programs that add a, you know, plus two or, or three, you know, a sort of, uh, you know, K through 14 type pathway uh, that lead directly to a good job. That's where we need to be focused. And fundamentally, the challenges, and I'm, I know we'll talk more about this, is that since, you know, for time immemorial, higher education or education in general has always been sort of planned out left to right. Right. Middle school builds on elementary school, high school builds on middle school, college builds on what you learned in high school. And that was all well and good while the labor market remained, you know, fairly the same, pretty much the same. Like when I graduated 25 years ago, you know, the fact that you graduated from a decent school and had a degree for most employers, that was kind of enough to know that you could learn how to do the job. And the labor market has just completely shifted from that. Most entry-level jobs require a series of digital skills, tech skills, platform skills, 
as we call them, that employers are insisting on. But they put these in the job descriptions. And if you don't have these skills, you're not even going to be seen. You're not even going to be considered because uh, you're, you're not going to make it through the applicant tracking system filter. Our education system is not teaching these skills. Left to right doesn't work when the end goal of a good first job has uh, almost completely transformed from what it was a couple decades ago. So, you know, I was speaking at a, a conference before the pandemic. It was a couple hundred college and university presidents, and I asked them, you know, how many of your institutions actually teach Salesforce, right? The Salesforce ecosystem, 300,000 open, unfilled jobs today, probably another three, four million to be created over the next five years. Not one hand went up in the room. These, you know, entry-level jobs are probably best characterized as, you know, you're going to work for some organization, you're using, you know, one or more SaaS or software platforms to manage various business functions for the organization. That's what you're being asked to do. And our higher education institutions neither train on the platforms nor on these businesses. So, you know, that <laughs> that's why we are where we are. So I think about models where, you know, you can deliver those platform skills in high school or with a high school plus two model and, you know, get the people we most care about who need the, you know, who really need that socioeconomic mobility, you know, with their foot firmly planted on the, planted on the first rung of a career ladder, good first job, no debt. And then after a couple of years of that, they can look around and ascertain what additional post-secondary pathways they want to pursue to develop their careers. It's that transition to a good first job that, in my view, is really at the root of much of what ails America, our economic instability, social, political challenges. It's the fact that these good first jobs in the digital economy seem out of reach to much of America, and they're frustrated, and they're fed up, and they want to do something about it. And the answer is not four years in a classroom, and it's not even free college, in my view. Hmm. Can you touch on that a little bit? I know, I know we've there's been a lot of you know movement towards you know can we offer free college? You know the rest of you know, Europe and other countries do it. Why is that the right or the wrong way to think about you know getting more people a college education? I, mean, I think you've been hinting at this issue that you know this sort of linear approach or left to right approach served us well 20, 30, 40 years ago. But it's a lot messier now, right? And there's, you can't just go and signal your skills by having proven that you can do something in four years. So where does free college sort of fit into this model? Yeah, I mean, free college sounds good to those of us who are interested in having America emulate the economic dynamism of Europe. <laughs> so, you know, where you have 29-year-olds who are continue to be enrolled part-time in university with no clear pathway to employment. So that that is not the model. Look, the model is not to reward colleges and universities who continue to teach the things that faculty want to teach. And that's effectively the way the model works today. We need to teach the things that employers are looking for in their good first jobs. And again, I'm not, I don't mean to denigrate or lessen the importance of uh, cognitive skills, critical thinking skills, executive function skills, problem solving skills. All of those are critical, critical importance. But the reality is that those skills can also be taught in conjunction with the platform skills and business knowledge that employers are looking for in these good first jobs. And the fact that we don't do that. How do we change the incentives, Ryan? Because these universities, these deans, department chairs, 
they have a sense of what's going on in their ecosystem and their market. We work with many of these universities and they're often very connected to society in terms of what, what they're serving and the communities that they're serving. But there's something I think broken in the system that doesn't allow for this sort of agile building of training, essentially. It takes too long. It's too supply side driven versus demand side driven, if I'm sort of stating that accurately. That's right. Yeah. How can we think about this where we can iterate more quickly here on the educational provider side? It's very simple. We don't fund outcomes. We fund inputs. We fund enrollment. And so colleges and universities are continuing to do it because they can get away with it because there are no consequences. Even our system of accreditation, it's all about inputs and processes. There's virtually nothing in there about outcomes. There was just a, a review of one of the, the large remaining for-profit accreditors uh, and the panel, Nasiki, was looking at their outcomes for the first time. And, and the chair of that accreditor basically said like, look, this is not what, you know, <laughs> this is not what we're supposed to do. It's not, you know, not required and so forth. It's all about, you know, you remain an accredited institution and therefore eligible for federal Title IV funding if you're making incremental progress towards a series of goals over a five to 10 year period. Meanwhile, you're enrolling tens of thousands of students who are experiencing bad outcomes that the government is paying for. I'm not suggesting that's gonna change uh, overnight, it, it won't, but I do think that the government should begin funding innovative new models that rather than what I call education up, are employer down, meaning right to left, meaning you start with what that good first job is, and you work backwards from that. And you deliver those platform skills and business skills that employers are seeking, and you give you know, tens, or th tens of thousands of, of students their foot firmly on the first rung of a career ladder, and, you, and then you let them evaluate what additional pathways they have once they've sort of achieved economic security. So you know, going back to the masters at Georgia Tech, that actually would be a great program if there were somehow an on-ramp for students from high school, right? right, You know, you could go and you say like a one-year inexpensive pathway. That's basically the types of models that we're, that we're building. Great segue to, you know, the employability part of this conversation. But before I get off that, I, I, I love a lot of your blog posts. And, and uh, you wrote one recently comparing student loan debt to the Mets deal with Bobby Bonilla. And I'm a lifelong Mets fan from, from Long Island. And I'm sorry. Every year there's Bobby Bonilla Day. Yeah, July 1st. We, we don't celebrate. So it's it's a great lesson, right, in time value of money. And and obviously the students and mostly the Mets are, are you know, in our situation losing. Can you kind of explain this comparison? Because I thought it was really clever. Well, I think the interesting thing is, is that and what most people don't realize is the reason why the Mets did that is that the Mets ownership, they had all of their money invested with a gentleman by the name of Bernie Madoff. And Madoff was sort of promising them double-digit returns forever. The idea was, well, rather than paying Bobby Mania whatever it was, I forget, like 15, 20 million today, I can invest that with Madoff. And in you know 10 years, when the bill starts coming due, I'll be paying him with the interest that I've made. So I basically will have made 20 million dollars by deferring that. Of course, those Madoff returns were, you know, not only illusory, but fraudulent. <laughs> so, and I, I think that, you know, many students who are, you know, taking on significant student loan debt are kind of lured in by, you know, elusive claims by uh, colleges and universities, or, you know, at a minimum, uh, a sort of elusive societal view that this is the only pathway, the only way to make sure that I, you know, have a, an economic future. 
in this country. And for many institutions, it's not true. It's illusory, if not fraudulent. Yeah. Well said. Yeah, I think it was something like $5 million <laughs> yeah, maybe five uh, that they million. could have paid him. And, and yeah. instead, they're, we're on the hook for multiples of that as uh, the Mets organization. But I think their new owner can, can afford it. Before we jump off, actually, I mean, one thing that's been concerning to me as a citizen and just trying to wrap my head around it is that really no one's paying back their loans right now. I think it's something literally like no one is. Yeah. For the last year, no one has been paying it. Yeah. Yeah. No one's been paying it. And entitlements often are hard to roll back. Where do you see this ending? Like, are we just going to sort of flip the switch and just say, all right, everybody, you got to start paying back your loans. Do we just write it off? I mean, this is kind of a, an interesting moment we're in right now. Yeah, it's going to be written off. I think my, my partner, Daniel Pianco, estimated that it's probably going to be a $500 billion, you know, hit to the tax you know, to, 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 to the country at a minimum of the, of the 1.7. It, it's somewhere between 500 billion and a trillion that of the 1.7 trillion is never going to be paid back. You have almost half of all students enrolled in these income-based repayment programs. And I think, yeah, the fact that no one's been paying for the last year with the, the COVID deferral means that we really, you know, have entered a culture of sort of non-payment. It's going to be very painful to start repaying again. So I think that it's going to be a write-off. I'm, I'm, I'm less focused on that you know, given the amount of additional debt this country has taken on over the last five years, uh, an additional trillion dollars isn't going to be ruin uh, for us. But I am very concerned about what we do going forward. And, you know, our solution is we just need more better pathways that lead to jobs and probably aren't tuition based. In our view, look, there are over 9 million unfilled jobs in the country, probably about half of them are great jobs that college graduates, young people would love to be able to get if they could. We need to build pathways to those jobs. And the reality is that if someone is asking you to pay tuition or take on financial risk to access one of those jobs, they have probably either a bad business model or at least an unimaginative one because there is a willing payor for that talent. That's the end employer that can't find uh, the talent to fill those positions. And so that's why we are now focused on employers and employment and employer pay models and apprenticeships rather than tuition-based models. There will always be a role for tuition. And of course, if you get into one of our you know, incredible 50 selective universities in America, it's probably worth every penny that they ask you to pay. Most of them are sort of need blind. And, and, and so if you can't afford to pay, they help you do it. So I'm not concerned about those, but it's the other 95% of institutions that are non-selective, that are basically luring you in with discounts and promising you that this is you know, the solution to your economic future. And Probably about 30% of those uh, students have good outcomes and 70% don't. Yeah, you you know, I want to jump into this a little bit in terms of uh, you've talked about federal work study and apprenticeship programs that are, it exists, right? But certainly not at scale. And so we hear about this earn while you learn type of programs. And it seems like something that would be so great to sort of solving a lot of the issues we're talking about here. These people would be basically in this on-ramp right into that first job. What is holding us back here? Why are apprenticeships, I think, I don't know, a tenth of the level that they are in other parts of the world where maybe they're they're utilizing it more so? What do you think about this topic? Yeah, look, I think you, you've hit on something. They, they both uh, sort of uh, work integrated learning and apprenticeships. If you look at where they're successful, whether in Switzerland or Germany, or even in the US in the building and construction trades. We have 500,000 apprentices in the US, almost all of them 
are in the building and construction trades. What they all have, and, and also uh, areas where you have you know work integrated learning at scale, they're almost always marked by the presence of an intermediary who stands between the student, or in the case of work integrated learning, the educational institution, and the employer. And it's really important to understand this because Look, employers don't have the time <laughs> or interest to, to do this themselves for the most part. You have a, you know, in America, the only apprenticeship programs of, of note outside of the building and construction trades are run by subsidiaries of Swiss and German companies that are told by their overlords in Europe that they should run apprenticeship programs. <laughs> so that's not, a, that's not a solution to, to scale. Employers won't do these on their own. In Germany and Switzerland, you have these chambers of commerce, trade associations, sometimes unions running these apprenticeship programs, been around for decades or centuries in some cases. They kind of make things easy for the apprentice. They recruit the apprentice, they train them, they hire them, they make them available to the end employer. So basically the the end employer doesn't need to do anything except effectively try that talent before they're being asked to make a hiring decision. That's how you scale apprenticeship programs. The idea that somehow, you know, the Fortune 500 in the U.S. are going to launch apprenticeship programs at scale is a fiction. It's never going to happen. Likewise, colleges and universities aren't going to do this. They can't do it. They just don't have the DNA. Academic institutions don't have the DNA to be connected with employers and employment, understand exactly what skills should be trained on. They just don't know. And so we are focused on investing in businesses that aren't intermediaries today, but have the potential to be intermediaries because of their position in the market. And we're buying these companies and we're converting them into what we call talent as a service businesses, where they're effectively sourcing, screening, training candidates on the specific skills that employers are looking for, hiring them, and then making them available to the end employer so they can evaluate that that talent. And we've scaled those models to thousands of placements a year very quickly because it eliminates the friction in the model, eliminates the friction for the candidate. They're not being asked to take a financial risk. They're being paid as employees from day one of training and they're guaranteed a job. So it's really the opposite of higher education. Higher education is you pay money, you take financial risk, and there's no guarantee of an employment outcome. These models are you're being paid, there's no financial risk, and you're guaranteed a job. And for the end employer, it's the same, right? The reason why we have millions of jobs that once were entry-level jobs that are now, effectively, if you look at the job descriptions, asking for skills and experience equivalent to two, three years, right? Entry-level jobs in many fields have become oxymorons. But you can get around that if you can present talent to employers and basically allow them to try try the talent before they're being asked to make a hiring decision. And that's how you get them comfortable that this talent, this, you know, that they may be from maybe from a school they haven't heard of or with a background they haven't heard of, maybe hasn't worked in the space before, actually is capable of doing the doing the job. So those are the and, and so you eliminate friction on the employer side as well. So those are the models that we think are likely to in five to 10 years, you'll have dozens of those pathways. You know, you can call it an apprenticeship. They won't all be, you know, formal registered Department of Labor apprenticeship programs, but they'll have the key characteristics of apprenticeships, namely eliminating the friction for the candidate, eliminating the friction for the employer, an intermediary that kind of hides the wiring for everyone and runs the apprenticeship program. So, you know, you can imagine 
20, 30 of those in every large market in the country across every skill gap area. You know, in my view, this is the answer to higher education because that's when, you know, the universities that are having problematic outcomes are going to have to change is when their student body, rather than enrolling and taking on tens of thousands of dollars of student loan debt, opts for these pathways, these, as I call them, faster and cheaper pathways to good first jobs that are being set up. And all we need now is just to set up these pathways. Yep. No, it sounds really a, a great vision for the future. I think this is a great segue to what you're already talking about, which is the the term you coined, last mile training. So I'd love for you to define that a little bit better. I think you have just defined a lot of that, but I think yeah. it's, uh, and <laughs> yeah. even you mentioned wiring, which of course it's a nod to the, the telecom industry here with last mile. Help us understand it. Help us understand, you know, what is reasonable because when you think about education, it can't be a day, right? It can't be a course. It can't be a MOOC that 5% complete. Yep. It's got to be something that really gives somebody, I guess, a bevy of skills that allow them to be job ready the way you just described it. So jump into that for me, if you don't mind. Sure. So yeah, the last mile comes from the cable or telecom industry where it's uh, on a per customer basis. It's not terribly expensive to roll a trunk down, you know, the middle of a road, but it's very expensive to connect that trunk to every house. So it's the expensive part, it's the hard part, but ultimately it's the valuable part. It's why we don't have, you know, 10 different cable companies serving each of our homes, right? Because once someone has made that investment and run that run that wire, no one's going to do it again. So the last mile in in education and training is really about the specific skills that a given employer is looking for. You know, the point is that in the same way that it's expensive for a cable company or a telecom company to run that last wire, it's really expensive and hard to do that on an employer, you know, by employer basis. We hear about every year or so there, you know, there's a handful of so-and-so community colleges partnered with, you know, this shipyard or this employer to launch a you know program that's you know going to be training students for that particular employer. It's probably not that big, and it probably doesn't. You don't hear about it after a year or two because it probably someone leaves their position and loses interest and kind of goes goes away. So those those tend not to scale. But if you have an intermediary that kind of runs, for example, we just bought a company that's in the Salesforce ecosystem. And so they're going to run last mile training with basically six weeks of immersive training on the Salesforce platform, and then probably six weeks of job-specific training, be it you're an admin, you're a developer, you're an architect, et cetera. That individual then, and and by the way, it's not just the technical skills, as you say. You need a whole bevy of skills to be successful. There are sort of business skills, soft skills that you need to know, you need to have to be successful. And so that's why we... All of our training is not online. It's it's immersive. It's in person. It's actually in an environment that it's it's like a boot camp. Effectively, it's an immersive boot camp environment where you're working on real projects for employers. And at the end of the day, you're producing uh, a candidate who can actually be productive on a, a job that the that a given employer has. And that's different from your typical sort of college or university program. And the cycle time is much faster because, you know, after a three-month program, you kind of know whether you've been successful, you know, within six months, you kind of you kind of know and you can sort of go back and adjust and so forth. And when, you know, it's part of a multi-year degree program, you're not going to know that answer for years. In the same way that, uh, you know, sort of uh, there are lots of things across our lives that have become unbundled 
many of us don't no longer buy sort of the full cable television uh, package, et cetera. We're you know looking at the unbundling of the of the degree. If you can sort of distill from that uh, degree program those courses, programs, skills that are going to allow that candidate to get that good first job, and you can do that in three, six, twelve months, even two years. Right. I was speaking a, a, to the board of one of the large charter school organizations, and this is an organization that from first grade, they have the college pennants and posters in their classrooms. So the whole, you know, the, the whole ethos is all around, you know, college from day one college. But if they look at their outcomes, you know, maybe 70% go on to college. And of those 70% that go on to college, maybe 40% complete. And of those who complete, maybe a quarter of those are going into a good first job. So that's like a 10%, 10% success rate. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, there needs to be an, an alternative. And so we talked about, you know, what if instead of community college, we sort of redesigned a two-year post-high school pathway. So it's like an on-ramp to the last mile programs that we're, we're developing. And that on-ramp is all about sort of technical preparation, relevant cognitive skills, communication skills that you need to be successful in those jobs. It would look very different from an associate's degree today, very different. That's the kind of thing that could actually lift up millions of young Americans in need who just don't have access to the dynamic economy that you and I are working in. For me, I keep seeing this like starting with the end in mind to a degree versus meandering through college for the sake of itself that hopefully lets you end up at a destination. But the statistics, like you just pointed out, are not proving out that great. Let me ask a question around last mile training because we're we're big investors in it as well at Wiley. We've seen it work well in technology-related careers where we know that there's huge need for these jobs, skills are changing constantly, and they're really good salaries at the end of this rainbow of training. How do you think about some of the other big job verticals, whether it's K through 12 teachers or or nurses, big job categories, but maybe don't make as much money. A lot of times there's like a big certification that you have to get through, you know, so there's, there's a lot of obstacles to overcome there. How do you think this could jump the rails outside of technology into other job verticals? Yeah, look, I mean, I think even nurses and teachers uh, need to know digital platforms to do their jobs. And so there's an element of technical training, last mile training, platform training that can go into pretty much any any profession, right? There, there are very few jobs that have no digital component where there are no platform skills required at this time. But the other point is that, you know, last mile training is also about essentially practicing the jobs. You know, that I, was, I was surprised to learn that, you know, there are most new nursing school graduates having passed the NCLEX are basically not qualified to be on the floor of a hospital. There are very few hospitals that will bring them in because nursing schools provide less actual on-the-job training uh, than they did a couple decades ago. I'm not sure why that is. It could be for insurance reasons. At the end of the day, there are lots of jobs that you need to learn by doing effectively. And, and you know, most employers in America, uh, and this is, you know, something we haven't talked about, but really since the Great Recession, most employers have sort of gotten out of the business of entry-level training. They just don't want to do it. It's not worth it. And, and, and their calculus goes something like this. Probably 50% of new college grads going into a, an entry-level job churn out of those jobs within two years. You know, maybe 
two to 5% are bad hires that could cost the employer as much as six figures in order to deal with that candidate. So, you know, why would we take a risk on an unproven candidate? I'd rather just leave the job unfilled. And that's sort of the, you know, and so we actually own a company called PrepMD, which was born out of the fact that in the Great Recession, Medtronic, the large medical device company, got rid of its entry-level training program. And, you know, the guy who ran it went up and set up his own shop and we invested in it and it's great, great business. So I think a lot of what last mile training is, it's not just the platform skills, it's actually getting that work experience on the job in a way that uh, allows the ultimate employer to evaluate you before they're being asked to make a hiring decision. And I think that that's relevant for nursing. I think it's relevant for teaching. I think it's relevant for a whole host of professions. So I, I see intermediaries emerging across the industry, uh, in technology certainly, but in other areas as well, and playing that role. So with the adoption and acceptance of this new type of education and training, does it increase the, the pool of people getting trained? Does it take away from higher ed? I mean, is it a zero-sum game or is it expansive? Because you know, obviously we can't keep going down the, the road that we are in traditional higher ed because that's not acceptable. A lot of these coding boot camps, like for example, that exist are just training people out of the four-year you know, institutions, which seems a bit redundant. Right. Yeah, no, there's no reason. It's it's actually scandalous, the fact that you've got institutions that are charging what they charge, and then their continuing education divisions are trying to sell you an additional coding boot camp program. Like, why wasn't that included right. <laughs> in, my degree, <laughs> in my degree program? I don't understand. Look, I think it's both. I think that it's... Uh, I think it's additive in that if you have these pathways that are frictionless, risk-free, and where they're hiring you from day one, you're going to pull in millions of people who are currently not in the system. But I think it's also going to, like I said, you know, take students away from those schools that are just not achieving outcomes. I think if, the, you, know, if you have an alternative pathway where you're hired as an employee and being paid from day one, you're going to be very focused on what the employment outcome is likely to be from you know the non-selective institution you're considering enrolling in i would be <laughs> yeah so le- let me switch gears slightly we have 2012 was the year of the mooc according to the new york times 2021 has seen moocs grow dramatically in terms of usage i i, I guess or people on the platform based on published stats from coursera and edx coursera went public to you acquired edX. So MOOCs are, are this interesting, ex- still experiment, right? How do you think MOOCs are making a dent in sort of higher ed in the employability issues that we're talking about here? Or is it just still too early to tell? You know, I don't actually. I think MOOCs are, we talk about Coursera and edX. They're not really MOOC companies. They're OPMs where their lead gen is largely driven by these free free courses and content that they make available. I don't think MOOCs have succeeded. I think it's it's marketing for certificate and degree programs. And these certificate and degree uh, the certificate programs at least, you know, I put them in the category of corporate training. I mean, these are people taking these programs are not the sort of people that we've been talking about, you know, the 22-year-old or the 18-year-old who, you know, has no pathway to a good first job. The people who are taking them at least in the US are those who already have a good job and are seeking to upskill and are doing it, you know, either on their own or with their employer's encouragement and perhaps the employer's paying for it. I don't really view it as new. In my view, 
once you have a good first job, there's just no question that almost all your upskilling can be done online. If you've reached that level, and so that could be a MOOC, that could be, you know, LXP, you know, like degreed, it could be even a degree program, potentially, probably not. If you're not there yet, is online the answer? Uh, and I think no. Uh, I think that, you know, those who don't yet have the sort of motivation, organizational skills to sort of, you know, secure that good first job, online is probably the worst modality for them. They need an immersive environment where, you know, we can really help build all the skills, the cognitive skills, the non-cognitive skills, the soft skills, and so forth. And I haven't seen a sort of technical or online platform that's capable of doing that yet. I hope one day there will be, but for, for, for now, I think that pathway between, you know, high school, K through 12, and a good first job cannot be online. It needs to be immersive, intensive, in-person, connected, of all the things that, you know, you and I benefited from when we were, you know, looking for our good first job. And so I kind of laugh a little bit when I see, you know, all these big Google and Microsoft and so forth saying, you know, we're making all of our, you know, all these courses available for free, you know, our job is done. And of course, these are asynchronous online courses, where the completion rate is probably going to be 5% or less. And even then, you know, employers, they're not going to hire someone because they just completed one of these online asynchronous certificate programs. No way. They're going to look for experience. It feels a lot like a, a glorified textbook or a, you know, courseware, which to your point, there's so much more to it. I, I might disagree slightly in that, there, you know, maybe hybrid, you know, can work because- No, I, I, I should qualify that, I think. I mean, so we have a program called Design Lab, which is- it's an online program. There's a lot of synchronous to it. And then they have 40 hours of mentorship with someone who's actually working in the profession to help you with your job search. That works. So there are online models that work. But so when I, when I say online, I'm really talking about more of the asynchronous right. sort of classic online yeah. programs. Yeah. Awesome. Well, uh, switching gears to talk a little about the pandemic. And you stated in Inside Higher Ed, COVID's forced shift to remote learning was a once in a century opportunity to re-engineer courses to active learning because it would have allowed college and universities to overcome the three barriers to active learning, classroom, faculty, and student resistance. Can you explain what you mean by active learning and why this is so transformational and different from what mostly happens on campus? Sure. Yeah. Active learning is uh, effectively the flipped classroom. All of the content delivery happens before you come to class. And in class is a series of questions and work. The professor is, is, is asking questions, uh, often separating the class into groups, and you're working on these, trying to answer the questions in real time. So it's highly digital. Everyone sort of has their you know, iPads or phones, and they're trying to answer the questions, and the professor is getting responses in real time and seeing sort of whether you know, everyone is getting it, getting it right uh, in real time and discussing it. That's how learning actually happens. And it's basically, you know, twice the amount of work for the professor, for the faculty member, twice the amount of work for the students, because they actually have to do the work before class, and they really have to think and do work in class. But it's probably twice the learning, or at least, you know, by some studies, 30, 40% more learning is actually occurring in active learning of models. But look, it, it's, I get it, right? You've been teaching the same course the same way for 10, 20 years. Like, why would you want to reinvent the, the course? And so very few are. And again, given our, you know, government and creditors' lack of focus on outcomes, no one's going to force them to. 
But, you know, it would have been a good opportunity because pretty much everything that has been done online over the last year could have been done in an active learning format. Yeah, it's it's really intriguing. And I think back to when I first learned about Khan Academy and the flipped classroom, which feels like well over a decade ago now. And I'm not sure if if we've seen the promise of that. And I always thought that, okay, you can take the best professors teachers in specific subjects and capture their lectures like you're talking about here and then allow for that active learning and yet everyone's reinventing their own wheel <laughs> at all these different educational institutions right so is this a a faculty issue an administration issue what what do you see how can we get to that point where we we can not have to keep reinventing the wheel in sort of how to teach college algebra at least from a lecture standpoint and then allow that active learning to happen are there tools that we can do, strategies? Yeah, look, no one teaches Economics 110 the way I teach Economics 110. So that is literally the, the mentality at 98% of colleges and universities. It's, you know, we do it our special way. It's That's the reason why transfer is so hard, right? Like, you know, why would I take these transfer credits from this student coming from this community college? That's not the exact way we teach that course. Let's have them do it again. What's the harm of that? Well, there's big harm. <laughs> there's big harm from that. So they're not invented here syndrome pervades higher education, it's going to continue until someone says stop. And that someone is got to be the person who's, you know, who's paying for it, which is the government. So until the government steps in and either requires it or demands that accreditors require it in the, in the form of outcomes, nothing's going to change in my view. Well, sorry, it won't change until enrollment falls off a cliff because there are millions of new seats in these alternative pathways that have emerged and uh, college will have no choice but to be more focused on uh, outcomes for their students. But it's going to be one or the other. Either the government's going to uh, require it or it'll be you know, the result of market forces. Probably the government will require it after it's too late and market forces have acted. So what other innovations have you seen you know, accelerate either in a good way or maybe in a, even in a bad way coming out of the pandemic? We know 100% of college students were effectively online in some form or fashion. Is there anything you see sticking right now that, that's resonating beyond what we've already talked about? And then maybe we hit some of the, the negative stuff like the, you know, we talked a little bit of the academic integrity issues that are, yeah. are sort of popping up a lot right now. I wish I could point to something and say, that's a good outcome from the pandemic. But I, I feel like almost everything was so sort of jerry-rigged, this remote learning, that it probably left a negative taste in most students and professors' mouths about online delivery. I think that administrators, leaders at colleges and universities recognize now how essential it is to have an online presence and, and platform. And they're probably, you know, I imagine you're, you're pretty busy <laughs> nowadays in conversations with colleges and universities who don't yet have that. But I, I think in terms of are people now more or less excited about online delivery than they were? I think they're more used to it, which you know may foretell sort of a, a, a future acceptance. But I think that right now people are just you know very excited to get back to the same old, same old. Yeah, yeah. What we're seeing is that there used to be 
kind of online over here. We talked about a lot of times graduate level programs, and then there's this other experience. And I think because of the pandemic, they were the lines really started to blur. And so I think coming out of that, we've worked with a lot of universities to kind of create sort of maybe one way to teach a course, whether it's online and on ground, and sort of utilize technology for the best of what it can bring. So we're we're hoping that, that we see a lot more than that, that it doesn't kind of go back to it. Plus, I think you have traditional students, interestingly, they want the traditional like in-person community experience, but they're perfectly happy to be in their pajamas in their dorm room, you know, taking a class. So I'm not sure if that's a good or a bad thing, but I think there's probably more acceptance of that. I'm not sure parents like that either. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I mean, I think there's a lot of work to be done, right? I think that businesses like yours can, there are thousands of universities who would benefit from having help convert to you know, hybrid active learning models and active learning. You really can't do it without a hybrid, without the technology. You can't. You can't do that. And I think there are thousands of universities that would benefit from figuring out how to integrate certificates and industry-recognized certifications into their degree programs to yield better outcomes. And they're not going to know how to do that themselves. So you wrote a great article called, If You Can't Stand the Cheat, Get Out of the Kitchen. Certainly the pandemic brought to light how easy it is for students to change their identity and, and be somebody else or get answers to questions that they have. And that might drive outcomes in a particular course or a program for a student, but not the outcomes that I think you and I are talking about here of mastery of concepts. And so how should we be thinking about the issues right now? And it, it seems like technology is driving a lot of that and it's hard for universities with the weapons they have to sort of combat that. So what are your thoughts here? Yeah, look, I mean, I think it points to the fact that, you know, our old model, our legacy model is just so focused on these summative assessments, right? You have a couple of assessments in every course, every semester. In an active learning model, like we were discussing, you don't, you're actually assessing all the time. You have formative assessment constantly, where, you know, you, it, that's impossible to cheat. <laughs> it's impossible to cheat on that. You can definitely lessen the cheating by shifting from passive to active learning, shifting from summative assessments to formative, formative assessments. I think you can also lessen the incentive to cheat by shifting from sort of a focus at the course level to sort of assessing the body of a student's work across a, a pathway or a program. And that's the sort of thing that, you know, e-portfolios and so forth can be helpful with. And then finally, you know, work integrated learning, we talked about it briefly before, but that's the kind of thing that you can't cheat on, right? If somebody gives you an actual, you know, the same way that you don't, you don't hear about rash or the, the cheating epidemic at Exxon Mobil, because, you know, someone cheated when they were, you know, being asked to put together a financial model or a, a report in their job, that doesn't happen because that work is bespoke. No one has done that before. You're being asked to do that for the first time. So work integrated learning is inherently that way. There is no opportunity to cheat because no one's done that before. More work integrated learning by definition means less cheating. How do you envision moving beyond just you, you show up with your resume and effectively the employer looks at that degree, right? Or that credential. You know, we've been hearing about and talking about digital credentials for for a long time now, is there a tipping point where an individual is no longer just this monolithic degree, mostly, or some job experience? They are a series of of skills and sort of things captured in, in a more robust sort of resume or whatever we call this, digital credential. Yeah, look, I think that if you, if you think about the hiring process in terms of a funnel, 
okay? And you have the top of the funnel where you have thousands of applicants for a given position. Then you have sort of the middle of the funnel where you're, you know, talking to, I don't know, 20, 30 candidates. Then you have the bottom of the funnel where you're choosing from among a handful of candidates. I think in the middle of the funnel and the bottom of the funnel, we're already there in lots of, in lots of, at lots of employers. They're already looking at those specific skill-based certificates and educational programs. The real problem is the top of the funnel where right now those certificates and uh, certifications and skills are pretty unintelligible to the applicant tracking systems that are filtering those thousands of applicants and helping the hiring manager or HR manager figure out which 20 or 30 applicants they're actually going to talk to. It's not a huge tech lift to get there, to have applicant tracking systems that are actually intelligent and able to interpret these signals uh, that are being sent on the resume. So we have a company, Credly, which is the leading digital credential platform that is actually, we think, has a solution for that. They're called Credly Recruit that will make those signals uh, highly intelligible to, and in fact, allowing employers to recruit specifically on specific credentials uh, that uh, represent skills they just can't find or don't don't have. So a couple of quick questions before we wrap up. You know, we've all been facing every week a, another cybersecurity attack of some kind that's impacting our lives. And you recently wrote about this and, and you called it the cybersecurity Sputnik moment, that we have a major problem in society, probably the biggest threat to our national security. And yet we don't have enough people that are trained to help combat this. And so I like the analogy to Sputnik and, and how Kennedy and, our, and our, that generation sort of inspired investment in skills that we need in engineering to be able to send uh, man to the moon, so to speak. Where do you think we are now? And do you think we're actually going to invest in this really important area from an educational perspective? Well, I don't see colleges and universities doing it, unfortunately. I just don't think they their their faculty is not attuned to the specific issues. If you haven't worked in cybersecurity in you know the past five years, you're kind of out of the loop <laughs> as to what the skills are. They're not really interested in it. You won't be surprised to hear that you know we think the answer is going to come from industry. It's going to come from new intermediaries. We're on the cusp of uh, completing the acquisition of a large managed security service provider that's going to create the first scaled apprenticeship program in cybersecurity, hiring new uh, analysts from day one and training them on the specific skills and putting them to work in a security operations center for a couple of years before they'll transition over to clients. And we think that's the way to scale these pathways. The good news about cybersecurity is that the jobs are mostly actually at these intermediaries. They're actually at these outsourced service providers, MSSPs, because very few enterprises uh, try and insource uh, everything that they're doing on cybersecurity. It makes more sense to sort of outsource that. So the answer is, is sort of more of the same, more intermediaries, more businesses that see that they can actually do well by doing good by launching a, a scaled formal or informal apprenticeship program. This has been an excellent discussion, Ryan. So I ask this of all my guests. Part of what we love about education is that we have we all have learning champions. So who has been a learning champion for you and how has that person helped you in your life? That's a great question. You know, I'm from Canada originally and my whole education up through high school was in French, actually. There were a bunch of uh, great Quebecois teachers <laughs> that I had that were inspiring, inspired my love of, uh, love of learning. Although the downside was that they taught me when I got to college in, in the U.S., I took French courses that the uh, professors there told me that I spoke like I had a hockey puck in my mouth. So they, <laughs> they taught me to speak Quebecois. <laughs> 
unfortunately. But yeah, no, I was very lucky, and I think actually learning that, learning to 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 speak and think in a second language is incredibly incredibly valuable. Well, thank you, Ryan. I've enjoyed our talk and excited to hear from you in the future and all the investments you're making. So until next time, this has been an educated guest. Thanks for joining us on today's episode. If you like what you're hearing, be sure to subscribe to An Educated Guest on your listening platform so you don't miss the latest episodes. For more information on Wiley Education Services, please visit edservices.wiley.com.